First You Think is a not-for-profit ministry of the First Unitarian Church of Des Moines. Support us at ucdsm.org today. In the old story, which is only that, a story, very old, about human love and loss and loss of hope and fortitude, two women are walking to the graveyard. Their friend has been murdered by the state, which could not bear the weight of love, a government which could not bear the burden of peace, and would not listen any longer to a young rabbi's call for justice, calls for mercy, simplicity, compassion, the ranting of a subversive, naive, countercultural, simple and simplistic zealot, so annoying and so dangerous to empire. Their friend has died. And they're going to the graveyard in the early morning to do what people always, everywhere have done. They want to wash his body. They want to touch him one last time and kiss his hair and smooth the agonized and twisted arms and legs and wrap him in clean cloth and close his eyes with their own warm hands. Some of you have done this thing. I know. They want to touch him one more time because they know that very soon the very part of him that seemed at times the most real, the physical part, will just burn away, dust to dust, leaving nothing for their hands to hold but questions, leaving only mystery and leaving maybe nothing or maybe memory, which is a kind of resurrection. But like most people in the throes of grief or hopelessness, these women do not yet believe in resurrection. They're walking in the dark before the day begins. They don't want anybody to see them. This is an intimate errand. And they're exhausted. They haven't thought this thing through entirely. Suddenly, one of them stops walking. She grasps the hand of her companion with a terrible thought, who will roll away the stone for us? Because the body of their friend is lying in a garden in a little cave, and soldiers have sealed it shut with this huge rock to keep the crowd away to let the whole affair die down. So they walk faster, fearful now, and wide awake. At memorials here and funerals, I almost always speak a variation on a well-worn prayer. May the beauty of their life shine and shine and may our lives bring honor to their memory. These lines say nothing at all about the person's life and character, except that there was beauty there. The lines say nothing about despair, how it punctures your spirit, ruptures your soul, crushes the will to go on. The story of the person's life and the sorrow of the people are held elsewhere in the service. But the prayer says, may the beauty of their life shine and shine and may our lives bring honor to their memory. It's absolutely for the living. It's an admonition. Keep on going forward. Keep going. Day by difficult day into the days of more light. Walk on toward your fear, because there's no other way to go. Walk into your sadness and your rage and your doubt. Go on despite despondency. Walk into the morning, the rest of your days, and let your love, your love of your person, your love of this life and all life, all people and animals and water and flowers and trees just coming green and history and music and art, 
let your love shine brighter than the sun and stronger than any stone. Let your love, which is your life, bring honor to their memory. These signs are marching orders. They're spoken gently to people who can barely put one foot in front of the other. So in the old story, the women are walking to the place of emptiness, which sometimes is the place inside you, right? It's a deadened place, this hopeless place, the wintry heart. The women arrive at the tomb to find the stone has been rolled back, and afterwards they insist against the patronizing scorn of their friends, the official and uh, proper disciples. They insist that what they were seeking and what they truly loved had never died and could not, in fact, be killed because something came to life in them. The ice of their grief cracked like lake ice, breaking up. Their fear unlocked, their own power blossomed, and something, some little feathered hope, flew out of them on bright, indestructible wings. They would then tell the story of their teacher's life and death, the story of the sickness plaguing their society, the sickness of money and power and privilege, the sickness of empire, and they would tell of this mighty resistance, revolutionary love, defiant as crocuses and buds on the trees. Love lives again, that with the dead has been. Come to the window. Look out and see the valley turning green, says the poet, in remembrance of all springs past and springs yet to come, the wood perfecting with immortal patience the leaves that are the work of all time, the river quivering under the morning's breath like the touched skin of a horse. Come to the window, look out, and you'll also see that your place, wherever it is, your house, your garden, your forest, bears the shadow of its destruction by greed and by plunder and war. Every household of the world, says the poet, is at their mercy. The households of the farmer and the otter and the owl, all at their mercy. Their pockets jingle with the small change of the poor. Their power is the willingness to destroy everything for money, which is power, which is ashes. Leave your windows and go out people of the world, into the streets, into the woods, along the streams. Go together, go alone, say no to the Lord of war, which is money and violence. Say no to guns and the killing of your children in school and the killing of dancers in nightclubs and the killing of black men and women by police, the killing of brown people in detention centers and the killing of indigenous women everywhere. This unending slaughter of innocent beloveds. Say no by saying yes to the air, to the earth, to the trees, to each other, every living thing, and every child. Say yes. I don't know a thing about the Christian theology of Easter, the faith that rests assured that dead people rise again, embodied and redeemed, I don't know a thing about vicarious atonement or anything about this old theology that insists fervently that somehow one innocent martyr can carry the weight, should carry the weight, of everybody else's sins, including mine and yours. I don't know a thing about that old theology. But I do know, I believe, that parts of this weird, sad, old story 
are playing out right now in our time, and they are literally true. And I know I've seen death and resurrection. I have stood, and maybe you have, in a barren, wasted place with the loss of somebody whom I loved howling through me, somebody cherished who I needed, who I sort of thought, in the way we always think about people we know about each other, who I sort of thought would never die because we never think that way. We can't. And then they do, and we're left adrift and a little dead ourselves. We are summoned then to do something we might not have believed was possible or wanted to believe because it feels almost like betrayal of the person you loved. Somewhere in the course of grief, we're summoned to believe that our own life is good and worthy. This whole world is lovely, and it's a gift, and we want to see it through, even brokenhearted as we are. One morning, when we least expect it, we notice the light on the kitchen floor moving, and after months of silence, the juncos are still scolding the squirrels at the feeder, and we pick up the phone instead of letting it ring, and we hear the voice of a friend. Something's reborn. In grief, we can't believe, we'd rather not, that life is good. And then by grace or chance or birdsong, by our will or against it, through the kindness of friends and the friendliness of strangers, by miracle, our hearts break completely open and we find they're still beating in there. We rise again. We're not cured of grief, never that, but healing. Not cured, but curious. What happens now? You look out that way toward the state capitol, you know that beautiful golden dome is shining there in the sun, but it's eclipsed now by poisonous shadow. And we think, how could that happen in Iowa? We shake our heads in disbelief, but that doesn't help. As one hateful bill after another decrees, our children don't exist. Our trans children, or they shouldn't exist. Our trans and queer children, actually all children, who need and deserve the whole truth in order to grow up healthy and strong, the whole truth about our whole lives. Our children, our siblings, our lovers, our friends, ourselves, diminished now, literally endangered. In another state, and this one could clearly be next, you know that now, Black history is illegal in the public schools. It never happened. Like science, it's eclipsed. And then you look out again, and you see on a spring Saturday in April, this church opens wide its doors after months of planning, hours of care by volunteers choosing to do it, called to do it, ethically, spiritually, serving justly, loving radically, this is the church. It has no steeple. Open the doors and see 750 people attending the Trans Lives Fest, right? They're moving in and out of these spaces, an oasis of safety and joy and music and art, and yes, a drag show, which is not yet illegal in Iowa, right? Young people, old people, actually just people saying yes and blessing this house by their presence. That is the only theology I can sift out of that Easter story, and it is a small but mighty thing. 
love in the face of death. Light and light and breath and hope and resilience in the face of death. It is no small thing. These old stories are not ancient history. We're still writing them, still learning to live in their weird paradoxes. Passover, where people under the weight of unspeakable oppression, tyrants without, holding us in bondage, demons within, holding us in bondage, somehow they get the idea to walk out. They choose the risk of leaving over the risk of languishing, the risk of not doing anything, apathy. They join their hands, lock their arms, head into the desert of unknowing, singing freedom songs into being as they go. It's one of the oldest stories in the Bible, and it happens all the time. It happens. Ramadan, a month of fasting, coincident this year, as it is not always with Passover and Easter, this holy season when the people remember, they clarify, what do we need? And what don't we need? And they lean toward it. Believers are not, we're called in this life to act as if our backbones, our spines, are as strong as the stems of crocuses, these tiny green needles that defy ice and concrete and layers of black rotting leaves just to rise and shine, knowing, as flowers do, that life is short. So why not shine? You're going to die. Why not bloom? And open all your purple-yellow self to the sun. Be a little reckless. That's what spring in Iowa teaches us. Be reckless with your love. And be careful what you wish for. Because everything goes round and round. This life is no straight line. It is a circle. So be careful what you wish for. Because to wish in April for spring is also to wish for allergies and then high summer. And to wish for summer is to wish for fall, which dies to winter round and round. To wish for freedom from slavery in Egypt meant the people wandered for decades in the terror of the desert before they found their way. To wish their teacher resurrected back to life meant the people had to take on themselves the burden of his teaching, his crazy radical ideas about justice and mercy and money and love. Be careful what you wish for and then take it on. Be careful when you head out into your barren backyard in the spring, pray for green, and it's going to come raucous and abundant, though not the green you had in mind necessarily all summer when you were paging through those seed catalogs and dreaming of roses and tomatoes in their orderly rows. Be careful what you wish for, because life is wild and creative and headstrong, and it will take you to places you didn't mean to go necessarily, chasing, creeping Charlie all over the place until you finally give in, as I did long ago, and call it your crop. I could win a blue ribbon at the Minnesota State Fair. Everything in this life requires more flexibility and laughter than we ever imagined, and more wonder as volunteer pumpkins in the compost remind us every year. Pray for beauty, and you'll get it. And it will be yellow, tenacious, easy to grow, dandelions everywhere. We try to make order our own aesthetic, but something different ensues, this wild old order that our own minds can imagine and our hands can't control, this cosmic, crazy, holy order that says the weed is as worthy as the Easter lily. 
The slave is as worthy as the Pharaoh, and the least of these, as Jesus said, are the worthy heirs to the kingdom of God, whatever that is. Be careful, or at least be on purpose, about what you're wishing for. Pray for justice, pray for peace, and it might end up looking like revolution, like restoration, like restitution, or resurrection, or reparation, and you'll be summoned to make it so, and the parched land could overflow with milk and honey if we wanted that enough. From Joyce Sutphin. One day, something very old happened again. The green came back to the branches, settling like leafy birds on the highest twigs. The ground broke open as dark as coffee beans. The clouds took up their positions in the deep stadium of the sky, gloving the bright orb of the sun before they pitched it over the horizon. It was as good as ever. The air, filled with the scent of lilac and cherry blossoms, sounded their long whistle down the track. It was some glad morning. And so is this one, if you choose to make it so.